Hello and welcome to Civicon. My name is Kevin Robinson. I'm a reporter here at the Pensacola News Journal and welcome back to Civicon. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And what Civicon is, is a joint project between the News Journal and the Studer Community Institute. And we've been trying to make Pensacola a better place to live, to work, to grow, to invest uh, through civic conversation. Uh, we looked at a lot of topics over the past two years, whether that's you know, how you can market your city as, as a destination for people to live and visit, how you can make your city safer for pedestrians, for people who walk. Like we've spent a lot of time talking about the city itself, um, but today we want to spend some time talking about the people and specifically our, our children, our students, uh, what we can do to make this a better place for our students to thrive and succeed regardless of their income or their background. And we've got one of the world's specialists on that subject matter, uh, Dr. Ronald Ferguson here today. Um, he's going to be speaking at Civicon, but he's going to sit down with us today and kind of talk a bit about his work and the achievement gap, what that is and, and how we solve it. Uh, but Dr. Ferguson is the faculty director at the Achievement Gap Initiative at Harvard University and co-founder co of Tribot Education Partners. Uh, welcome, Dr. Ferguson. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here. And um, I guess let's just start off about like the um, Achievement Gap Initiative. Uh, could you tell me a bit about you know what that is? What it is is an effort to bridge from research to practice on topics that can help the nation's children do better academically. There are actually lots of different achievement gaps. Uh, we talk about as if, there, as if there's only one, but we have children from lots of different backgrounds uh, that we care about. Kids whose parents have less education versus those whose parents have more education, or parents who have lots of money versus not so much money, kids from different racial and ethnic groups, different nationalities. There are things that are sometimes systematic about the structure of opportunities kids have experienced that then leads them during the school years to have different outcomes. Yes. And what we want to be sure is that every child from every background has the best opportunity to become their best self. So we hit the achievement gap issue from lots of different angles. Uh, the goal is not necessarily simply to close gaps. It's about helping all the children to do their best. And we think that in the process, students from groups that are furthest behind will progress the most and will end up at a state where race and ethnicity and background don't predict very much about achievement. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot, not just the achievement gap, but in helping people understand that, like my understanding, it, it starts, you know, before kids even get to school, there's already a gap between, you know, say, uh, an, a an average African black student and an average white student. Is that the case or, or how does that? Yeah, happen? I mean, there, there are gaps by race. There are also gaps by parents' education and socioeconomic status by the time kids are one or two years old. Right. Because there tend to be systematic differences in kids' lived experiences. Yes, sir. So these are not things that are written in stone. They're things that we can work on as communities. So you've been studying since I believe the uh, the the 80s, kind of like how this um, development, how this gap forms, and how you start to kind of close it. Um, I, I guess could you? How did you first like? You were trained as an uh, at MIT as an econ economist. I'm sorry. Right. So like a lot of your work is kind of rooted in data and statistics and, and, and measurement, and you started looking at these numbers and and kind of seeing how they bore out. I guess could you talk a bit about how you got to where you are in terms of like your Okay, I, I grew up wanting to make things better in communities like the one where I grew up. Um, to make a long story short, I found my way to economics. It seemed that these problems I was interested in were economics problems. So I got a PhD in economics from MIT, still didn't quite know what to do. Um, got hired at the Kennedy School at Harvard where it's all about public problem solving. Started teaching state and local economic development about how to bring jobs and businesses in. 
and end of the 1980s discovered, same time as a lot of other people, that standardized test scores measured during children's teen, teenage years were strong predictors of their earnings in their early adult years and predicted um, a lot of the earnings inequality that we were interested in. So at that point, I started to become more interested in, well, what produces these scores that some of these standardized tests are measuring? What are kids' learned experiences? What are their living experiences, lived experiences that lead to these differences in, in skill levels? And so I gradually shifted over from doing state and local economic development to focusing more on youth development, education policy, parenting, peer dynamics, and all those things that are closer to affecting kids' lived experiences. That's fair. Well, um, like you said, it, it's kind of a, a lot to kind of encapsulate, but uh, one of the, like, so what have you found, like, um, as you studied this problem, like, what are some of the key, I, I guess, formative, like you talked about, um, I guess, could you talk a bit about, like, what are the biggest influence or what biggest factors that can kind of help shape, you know, how? Yeah, well, I get the way to break it down is if we think, I mean, human beings live in social ecologies, just like an animal in the forest is interdependent with the flowers and the trees and is influenced by all that stuff. Uh, human beings are influenced with all the other human beings that they interact with. And so we, we think about if we follow a kid around through their lives, we see them interacting with their parents and their relatives and the other kids in the neighborhood and the other children in school and their teachers. And every one of those interactions is important. So I tend to break the work down in the way I approach it into thinking about their parents, first of all, um, to a lesser extent, their siblings and other family members, then their teachers and the adults who teach them at school, and then their peers and the other students that they interact with at school. And those are the core. And then around that core, we can think about the role of social media and um, other cultural influences that come in through movies and television and the music world. And each one of these things has an impact on how a young person understands himself, on how they spend their time and what they pay attention to, uh, what skills they accumulate. So from day one, even prenatal, we could talk about the roles that parents play in shaping brain development or very, very early brain development. And then just carry it forward talking about each of these things. So there's not one thing to point to. There's not even one period of life to point to every age and stage has important developmental work to do. There's a ton of brain development in those first three years that continues after that. The ages three to five are about developing socialization skills and early preschool skills so that when they hit kindergarten, they're ready to run. Um, kindergarten to fourth grade, third or fourth grade is about learning to read so that later you can read to learn and learning basic mathematics. Uh, fourth grade to eighth grade is very much about um, identity starting to come into focus. The kids asking the who am I question, how do I fit into the world? Um, eighth grade through 12th grade is about preparing to make the transition into adulthood. Okay, what am I really interested in? What high school courses should I take to prepare myself for what I'm gonna do after high school? 20, 18 to 22 is about actually making the transition into adulthood 
and trying to to get your footing, going to college or not, getting some kind of training, trying to find one way or another how to get settled into the world of work. And then 22 to 30 is about becoming established as a grown-up, right? Every one of those intervals has something that needs to be learned um, and some personal development that needs to take place. And if we don't get it right during any of those intervals, it's going to be diff more difficult later. And you can never totally make it up. You can kind of make some of it up, right. but um, the goal is to get it right the first time. Right. And so to help parents and caregivers understand what they need to do during those first first three years, including the way they need to connect with physicians and others. And then similarly, I could go through each of those age ranges and talk about what the work is. So, so there's not one magic bullet. It's the accumulation of lived experience through all these different uh, periods and all the different interactions. So do you find in communities where students are thriving and succeeding that there is this framework in place at all levels, all age groups that are helping these students succeed? Or, or do you find that it's kind of like there's maybe an environment where these families are already kind of trained to do these things that are important? Like you, So you authored a, um, a book, co-authored a book called The Formula, Unlocking the Secrets to Raising Highly Successful Children, right. where, where you talk to a lot of successful people and their parents about right. how they were raised and things that happened in their household. Right. Like so, do you find like it's kind of more the result of a, of a an informed driven parent, or that it's like a school system and social services? Like, like I, I guess where do you do you find any commonalities between like so? Well, I was, uh, sorry. okay, yeah, I can take it. The um, I mean, my co-author is Tatcha Robertson, who's an award-winning journalist. We interviewed almost two hundred people, um, some of whom were Harvard graduates, others of whom we just ran into out in the world but all of whom were impressive right. in various ways that, that, where they were highly successful. And by, by what we mean by being highly successful is they were school smart, they always got top grades, but they were also purposeful and had a sense of agency. They knew what it was they wanted to do in the world, the kinds of difference they wanted to make in the world. And they had to get up and go and gumption to take the initiative to actually do it. Right. And so if you're smart enough to do what you want to do and you know what you want to do, and you got the gumption to actually go do it. We, we say you're a fully realized human being, right? And the question was, how do you get to be that way? Right. And we were particularly interested in the roles that their parents had played in helping to, them to become this way. So if we went deep into everybody's life stories, there were roles for teachers, there were roles for friends, but their parents anchored it. Right. And their parents were their I tend to try to avoid saying the earliest teachers because they really aren't teachers, they're parents, right? <laughs> right? right. Uh, but from the very beginning, their parents were involved helping them to learn, exposing them to things, spending time playing games and reading and discussing and talking so that by the time these kids hit kindergarten, they were already ahead of their peers. A lot of them could read by the time they got to kindergarten. They were accustomed to problem solving so school was just one more learning experience with one other adult. They they just used to that, right? Right, and so then this that was so that was the first role we called the early learning partner. But then once they had started school, their parents monitored and managed. Um, they did they played a role we call the flight engineer. If life is is if a really highly successful life is like a flying on a high trajectory, then these flight engineers made sure that life life stayed on that high trajectory. So they would talk to their kids about, well, what's happening at school today? What's going on with you and your friends? And they keep track of those things. And if something was going wrong, the parent would intervene. Right. 
right. to hold a teacher accountable or to assist uh, the school or a teacher or to work with some other playmates, parents in one way or another to make sure that flight stayed, stayed on course. Now, in that process, they're obviously also drawing on the resources of the school. Right. And so good teachers in good schools would be a part of that story. But these are parents who insist that my child has a good teacher. You know, um, and they insist that, that the child's friends are not going to mistreat them systematically. Right. And so, um, and then the third role is the fixer who makes sure that the doors to opportunity stay open. And even if the parent, and we have parents who are rich, parents who are poor, all kinds of different folks. It didn't matter what their background was. Um, but if a parent was poor and they saw an opportunity that was a good match for their child's interests and skills, they wouldn't quit until they could keep the, get that door open. Right. The opportunity. They might find a scholarship. They might get you to make an exception, let them in free. They might have to sell something valuable that the family owned in order to get the resources to make sure that the kid could get through that, that door. Right. But one way or another, they make sure their had, the kid had that opportunity. The flip side of that, that opportunity has to be there. Right. Right? right. So if we want parents in our communities to fight for their kids to have high-quality opportunities, then those of us who have the, the resources and the influence to make sure high-quality opportunities are abundant have some responsibility to make sure it's there when that ambitious parent goes looking for it. Okay. Okay. Right. Similarly, the, the fourth role is the revealer. And the revealer shows children life's menu, all the different things you could be when you grow up, things you could be interested in, places you could go, things you could see. Um, they introduce the child to adults who have the, who share the child's interests. Right. Um, they spend time at the library finding books and helping the child, you know, go around the world through reading a story about something happening on the other side of the world. But one way or another, the revealer does that. And then we could talk about the philosopher and the model and the negotiator and the GPS navigational voice still filling in other lived experiences that are important and shaping that child. So we could tell the story that way, uh, making the parent seem like absolutely the most important um, thing without which kids can't do well. Right. But if the parent doesn't do it, somebody else can do it. Right. It's just the parent child needs to experience these things. And for a different child, it may come from different sources. So, so and looking at a, I guess, what is the school's or the teacher's role in this process? As you said, they can fill some yeah. of those roles, but say you do have a parent who is fulfilling these eight roles, how can the teacher be a supporter or how can they supplement what's happening at home? Okay. Um, teachers are extremely important complements to parents. They can't take the place of a parent. But they can do things that parents can't do or don't do. And there are ways that teachers can interact with young children that can be highly inspirational or highly discouraging. Right. Right. And so from the very beginning, pre-kindergarten pre or kindergarten, a teacher who signals to a child, I believe in you. You can do whatever you set your mind to do. Uh, hard work is the way toward success. Right. Um, you should treat people the way you want them to treat you. Right. You know, all those lessons that children learn from their teachers that help them to succeed in places where they have to interact socially with other other people are are important. Um, most I was at a conference last week where. 
when you introduce yourself, you were supposed to say, you know, who you are, what you do, and name the the most important teacher to you. Okay. I mean, there was nobody in that room that said, I don't remember. Right. Everybody had a teacher yeah. that they could name, right. right? And when you explained why that teacher was mattered so much, it was because typically it was a teacher who held you accountable and let you know that you could do anything you set your mind to yeah. and treat you with you. So it wasn't an easy teacher, right. wasn't necessarily even a nice teacher. It was a teacher who who gave you this feeling that if I work hard and do my best, I can go really far. Yes. And I'm a worthy human being. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so teachers are important in lots of the same ways that parents are. Um, but they're just working with larger groups of, of kids and their dedication to their craft, and it is a craft, yes, sir. you know, matters. Right. So I know one of the, um, so one of the issues in, in all fields, but, you know, in, in, in education is, is funding, is time, is resources, and there is a lot of pressure to get good test scores, maybe at the expense of being a, a good teacher and, and instead of being, you know, supportive and helping you explore your potential and, and be the best human you can be. We want you to get this score on your FCAT or your FSA. Um, one of the things that you talk about is measuring achievement or success in education, not just through test scores, but through growth. Um, so I, I guess, could you talk a bit about? Yeah. Well, and, and really I'm talking about growth in test scores. Yes, sir. A lot of times we, we have measures of skill. The, reason, the only reason we test kids is we want to know what they know and what they could do. Right. Right. And so tests are not some abstract or irrelevant thing. They're measured to figure out, well, what do they know now? What, they, what, what can they do? And it's a, way, it's, it's a diagnostic for the effectiveness of instruction. Right. Right. But if we want to know how effective instruction is, we need to know the change in what kids know and can do. Right. So just looking at the level, just looking at the kid, well, you can score a 67 today. Well, his ability to score that 67 is a function of his entire lived experience, everything he's learned his whole life. Now, the fact that last year he scored a 66 and this year he, he scored a 68, well, that's how much he's learned from, or maybe they'll take it a 78. His test scores have gone up 10 points. That's the gain over the course of a year. And particularly if it's a gain measuring some topic that you tend not to learn at home, like math or science. Right then there's a good chance that that gain is because of what he's experienced in school, yes, what he or she has experienced in school. So we want to look at test score gains over time, not at the levels. If you compare two different districts and one has test scores that are 30% higher than another one, that does not mean it's a more effective school system. It might mean the kids are just coming from more advantaged homes right. and they've had different lived experiences that give them a better baseline preparation. Right. Okay. The question is, if you watch those two school systems over time, do does do how many years worth of, of progress are produced per year? Okay, there's some data that I'll use in my presentation that come from um, an online calculator that a, a professor named Sean Reardon at Stanford has put together. So you can put in the name of a school system and look at how many years of growth of achievement growth they produce on average from fifth from third grade through eighth grade right okay there are some school systems that have really high third grade and pretty high eighth grade scores but produce less than five years of growth in five years 
Yes, sir. Okay, including some in the state that I won't name that right this minute. Right. That have produced about four years of growth in five years. The best school systems are produced in six, six or more years of growth in five years. Right. Okay. And so we want, we need, and it's a, it's subtle. It, 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 it takes some actually some sophisticated statistical maneuverings to, to look at the data the right way. And right. so that's why I would caution people against trying to figure out how good a school system is by just looking at proficiency rates or, 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 or test scores without looking at, at, at sort of the adjusted changes in those test scores over, over time. But the um, test scores do measure skills, though. Right. And so we really, and we care about those skills. Right. So I'm not arguing throw test scores out the window. I'm saying let's use them the right way and let's measure changes. And let me point out that the best, the wisest way to get test score growth is to deliver high quality instruction without focusing on test scores. Okay. You find the schools that make the most progress didn't drill and kill their kids on test scores. Right. They had really rich, richly engaged teachers in professional learning communities. They were watching each other teach and were having conversations about instruction and we're doing lesson planning together and using common examinations and debriefing how their kids, why the kids did well on the end of end of unit test or didn't and what they need to reteach and just having a rich conversation about teaching the things that were in the standard curriculum that were going to be tested, but they're not focused on the test. They're focused on instruction and they're focused on managing the socio-emotional climate of their classrooms. And in those kinds of environments, kids learn. And they'll do well um, on tests at the end of the day. But I think you're, the implication of the way you initially asked me about this is that some people get so focused on having their kids pass the test that they call time out on regular instruction. Right. And then they spend a lot of time just kind of drilling test-taking skills and, right. and trying to guess what's going to be on the test and make sure kids know at least that. Right. And um, that's not the way we want to do it. <laughs> And then I've got like um, some friends, some family members and, you know, others that stayed other parts of the country who are teachers who are involved in education. And a common complaint I and I think it's something I've talked to you about, but a common complaint I hear is that you know, a lot of time in the classroom is spent babysitting and just managing behavior or, right. or, or, you know, kind of dealing with issues that originate outside the home, like kids who maybe can't concentrate because they haven't eaten or they don't like, you know, don't have the supplies they need. Mm -hmm. Um I guess is there a way to? Well, I, I guess I want to kind of talk about like yeah. the supports for teachers like this. Yeah, like, I mean there are a few things going on there. I'd say at least three different things. One is if if it really is because they're hungry, right. and because they're distracted by crises outside the classroom, then somebody needs to help with that. Right. And sometimes a classroom teacher will help with that. Will you know, got a stash of food in the right. in the cabinet in the classroom. Got some extra clean clothes that they bring in to keep. Got some soap and washcloths, and so those kinds of things they'll they'll intervene with. Um, even if you know something's happening outside, the family needs some help. Sometimes the teacher will go above and beyond the call of duty and go out and help with that. So it's, that's those kinds of issues, just personal needs that are unmet, are one kind of issue. A second kind of issue is peer dynamics. Is um, things that children think they have to do in order to fit in with the other kids. And sometimes 
kids are trapped in their own peer culture. You get the whole group of them doing something that nobody wants to do, misbehaving in a way that nobody really wants to misbehave. But they all feel like they have to behave that way in order to fit in and that they'll be rejected from their peer group if they don't behave that way. And sometimes they're correct. They will be rejected from their peer group if they don't behave that way. But they don't really want to behave that way. None of them do. So you have everybody behaving in a way nobody wants to behave, but everybody thinks everybody else wants to behave that way. Right. 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 And nobody's got enough power and influence to flip it. Right. right. There's a phenomenon called pluralistic ignorance. That's when a group of people misread one another's values and preferences and then conform their own behaviors to that misreading. Right. right? I like to think of the example of a bunch of adults at a, at a conference. They've been in, room, in conference rooms all day. They want to go back to the hotel room, um, order room service, and watch TV. But somebody says, hey, let's go out to dinner, have drinks. And you don't want to go out, but you say, well, I'll go anyway. I don't want to seem antisocial, so I'll come along. Right. Somebody else in the group says, hey, now I'm tired. I'm turning. I'm going back to my room. And you reach out and say, no, come on. We're going to have a good time. <laughs> right. Okay, You don't want to go yourself, but you twist a near arm to go. Right. And so you end up, 10 of you sitting around a table. Nobody wants to be there. Everybody thinks everybody else wants to be there. Right. Okay. And so that's an example of pluralistic ignorance. And that same kind of dynamic can happen uh, in youth peer culture. Okay. And so children need our help. And I say children, I mean for upper elementary school all the way through high school. They need somebody to intervene, get them to admit to one another what they really want. Right. And then help have them all realize that they all really want the same things their parents and teachers would have wanted in terms of their behaviors and bring them along together. So that's the second dynamic, the peer dynamics. So you got the real hardship, then you have the peer dynamics. The third thing is sometimes teachers just aren't effective enough to hold their children's attention. Yeah. Okay. And then it really is about helping teachers understand how to present the material, how to actually engage young people intellectually in the classroom. You know, how do you tailor the curriculum to be at least a bit closer to what they would be normally be interested in? Right. When they get confused, how do you clear up their confusion or give them just enough hints that they can clear up their own confusion? Right. Okay. How do you forward and backward link what you're teaching so they know how it was related to what you already taught them and what you're going to teach them next? Right. How do you challenge them to, to think hard instead of just waiting for you to give them the answer on something? Right. To, to think rigorously and to persist in the face of difficulty and to stay on task. And all those things have to do with basic teaching skills right. that teachers can learn by watching one another teach, by talking about those things. So. If we were to have our teachers work together and with supports in ways that improve their basic reading, their basic teaching skills, if we were effective at intervening in youth peer culture to help young people bring about the culture they really want anyway, right. and if we were able to identify that those instances where there's something outside of school that's really getting in the way and find ways to deal with that, then we could um, do better with these classroom environments. But in most schools where you find even the majority of the classroom so disorderly it's hard for learning to happen, right. there are at least a few classrooms where there's never a behavior problem, yeah. where right. learning is happening smoothly every day, right. where the teacher has figured out how to get this, this done to make it happen. And we need to cultivate climates in buildings where people take advantage of that knowledge that's in the building already. Often if there's one teacher that's doing better than the others, or one school that's doing better than others locally, others will actually reject that as an example. 
make all kinds of excuses why well, those people are just crazy or those people that we could, we don't want to do what they're doing. Right. Okay. Um, we need to break through that to let people know, say, no, if somebody's getting it right near where you are. You need to know why. Right. <laughs> and you need to be able to explain why, if you're not trying to learn from them, um, why it is right. and what you know that's going to be more effective. Okay. It's just kind of human nature though. If somebody's, it's called the rate breaker phenomenon. You got somebody in the production lines working way faster than everybody else. Yeah. You want to slow them down or kick them off the production line, <laughs> as opposed to learning what there is that's enabling them to work that much faster. Right, right. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, but and you actually kind of got into something that I wanted to ask. Like, where do you start if you look at your school district and are dissatisfied? You know, whether you're a parent or an educator. If you look at your system and feel like we can be doing more, or we can be doing better. Like mm-hmm. uh, I know there's no like you said one magic bullet solution, but are there places where you can start looking for for ideas or best practices or ways to improve? Like if if you decide today and you were gonna like teach us how to make our school system better, like where would you start looking to know like where to go or what to aim for? Um, let me think. Let me ask you where would you start? Because the first question, well, who are you? And what resources do you have at your disposal? Right. I mean, I'm imagining a person standing in the middle of a bunch of levers. Right. The question is, which? what's the most important lever that you can reach from where you sit? Okay, if you're the superintendent, there's one answer. If you're a parent of a first grader, there's another answer. Right. Okay, if you're a sixth grade teacher, there's another answer. Um, so, but for anybody who's going to start to do something, the one question is, are there other people in my role that are already doing, uh, already appear to be succeeding in a way that I haven't succeeded yet. And is there something I can learn from them? Right. right? Yes, sir. And so looking for opportunities to learn something from, from somebody else, or even ways to start to search for whether there are other people who are in your role who are experiencing more success and, and to learn from them. Um, Another is to convene other people in roles like yours and to brainstorm together on what you might try to do differently and together compared to what it is you're already doing. So I'm a, I'm a third grade teacher and I want, really want to do better. And so can I take a leadership role in convening some other teachers to think about, hey, what can we do better? in third grade, what what do we as third grade teachers struggle with most in the curriculum to help our kids understand cl- more clearly? And can we put our heads together to figure out how to be better at that? Mm-hmm. Or if there's something where my kids come in from second grade, from first grade, well, I say third grade, they come in from <laughs> second grade, uh, not knowing some things that I had hoped they would know already by the time they got there. Is there any way I could help the second grade teacher to better prepare my kids with this particular dimension uh, so that they can do, be more prepared when they get here. Now that's going to be hard because you got to a second grade teacher and say you haven't, you've not been doing your job, <laughs> right, <laughs> right? right? So you don't want to do it that way. Right. But you might talk to your principal about better vertical alignment between the between, between grade levels, where the principal could ask every teacher in the building to list the topics that children come in not as prepared on as you would hope they had been done. And so you start to work more on vertical alignment of, of curriculum across the school years. And so you basically name a problem. 
right? And then having named a problem, mobilize some other people to help work on that problem if you can. And then stick with it over a period of time. Okay, some of the school systems that have turned around as school systems have, and one in particular, I'm thinking Chicago, they they um, have in place a way of choosing principal principals who are already proven leaders from other settings where they've shown that they can work well with adults. And among the things that these leaders do most effectively when they go into these schools is they'll choose a very limited number of problems to work on for the school year. They will break their the adults in the building into work groups or committees to work on those things, give them the freedom to really think hard and brainstorm, find what resources they might need to do the work, stick with it for a while, and figure stuff out. Right. And then from one year to another, they just figure out more what they need to do. In our book, The Formula, when we talk about these masterful parents, it's not that they started already knowing what they needed to do in order to prepare their kids for life, but they were really determined that their children would be well prepared for life, and so they figured it out. Right. right? And that's a big thing across all these different settings where we have problems we need to address. We need to name the problem, articulate it, and sometimes even the way we articulate what the problem is will evolve over time as we learn more about it. And we figure out later, oh, I guess that wasn't really the problem. It was really this thing over here. Right. right? So you allow yourself to be flexible with it. But having figured out what you're trying to work on, you mobilize resources, other people. To, to help work on it, you stick with it for a while, you study it as you go along to assess what progress you're, you're making, try to make mid-course corrections, and pretty much that's the standard problem-solving approach that is relevant no matter who you are and what you're working on. Right. And But you just have to be um, dedicated enough to, to do the work, to stick it, off, stick it out, and often that dedication comes off of something that has given you a sense of responsibility um, a sense of a burn, this feeling, hey, I, it's just the world's not right unless I get this done. Yeah. All right. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights and your perspective. I, I guess before we wrap things up, is there anything that you want people to be thinking about or, or take away from your visit today or, or thinking about as we, you know, try to like um, provide excellence with equity is what you say. Just making sure that all kids of regardless of background or you know race or edu- uh, or background or race can achieve excellence. Um, but yeah, any parting words? I guess I just want people to know that that every child is every adult's responsibility. That um, this is a community process. That there are lots of direct and indirect ways that we influence one another's kids. That the parents of one child can be the most important assets for some other child whose parents aren't necessarily doing everything that they could. That the adults who take care of our children need themselves to be nurtured. So if you just supervise and people at, at some job site where some of those people are parents, you're affecting the mindset that they go home with right. and the way that they're going to treat their kids when you get home. And so, um, Everybody should be on the lookout for opportunities to add value to other people's lives. And they're probably going to find more such opportunities than they were aware of before they started looking for it. And if you have a whole community of people who are doing that and are trying to do the right thing, it can be a great place to live, a great place to to raise kids. 
I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. Well, if people want to learn more about you or your work, is there a website, any place they can go to learn more about you? or, or your Well, work? I would refer them to our book, The Formula, under, uh, Unlocking the Secrets to Raising Highly Successful Children, that is available at any common books, booksellers. Um, there is material on the Achievement Gap Initiative website at agi.harvard.edu. Um, we, I do a lot of survey work in public school systems at uh, tripoded.com. That's tripoded.com. Uh, we work with school systems on that kind of stuff. We have early childhood intervention called The Basics. There's a toolkit at thebasics.org. Um, or just put my name in Ronald Ferguson and put Harvard next to it, and lots of stuff will pop up with videos and <laughs> other things to, to see. Uh, but for but these days we really want people to read the book. So okay. get get the formula <laughs> and read it. <laughs> yeah, I've read uh yeah, I've read part of it. It's very good reading. But um but thank you so much, Dr. Ferguson, for your time and thank you everyone who tuned in for this. Um if you want to learn more about Dr. Ferguson or, or see his presentation at, at Civicon, you can find that at our website. It's pnj.com slash Civicon. You can also see a variety of our past speakers. We've got two years worth of experts now, some of like the best and brightest thinkers from across the country, from around the world. You know, you can see everything they have to say and just learn about a variety of topics. But again, we thank you for tuning in and have a great day.